today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18 through 25. Um, beautiful text that is full of doctrine and truth. Uh, I'm going to try not to uh, point out everything uh, in the text. Uh, I'll, I'll give you stuff to go home and study and, and further dive in. I'll try to just pull out a few uh, principal truths, but we've already been singing and praying about many of them. Uh, the incarnation, um, God, fully God, taking on human flesh and Jesus Christ, God with us. We'll study that text today. Uh, we'll also look at the virgin birth. Um, and study on its importance as well. Uh, But I invite you, open up uh, the Bible, open up, uh, look at Matthew 118 uh, through verse 25 as we read it together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not, till she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the book of Matthew. We thank you for recording for us your birth in this way. Lord, I do pray that our hearts would be strengthened as we spend a few minutes unpacking and looking at the word. I pray that I would highlight um, and expound on the truths of scripture and that you'd hold me closely to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The way that I'm going to go through this today is very simple. I'm going to take verse by verse, and we're going to call out some truths and some things for us to consider and for the Lord to be able to use the Holy Spirit to prick our hearts, uh, to consider our own faithfulness, looking at the ordinances and decrees of God that the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, yes, finally, forever, and that we will see the beauty of doctrine and the reason that they're all connected to each other and how it's good for our soul. So let's just go through. I believe that we have verse by verse up here. We'll read a verse, and after we read the verse, then we'll unpack it a little bit. So starting in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you were reading the Bible from the first time and you were not numb to its miracles, what would you be doing right now? we would be standing there with our mouth wide open. But we've heard this truth so many times. Uh, My kids are laughing because I probably was, (gasps) you were thinking of that little thing that I do. Um, If you're act shocked, I have a little noise that I make. I will not do it in this microphone, but you'd be shocked. You'd be perplexed. You'd be listening to this truth and saying, what? I shared uh, last uh, Sunday afternoon about my um, 
my friend in China that's in prison, my missionary friend, if he would not have been given the book of John to read, if he'd have been given the book of Matthew to read, and he was looking uh, for freedom, and he read about verse 18 that says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, he'd be like, okay, who's Jesus this Christ? When his mother had been betrothed, he'd look up what betrothed meant, uh, and then he would say, before they came together, and he'd be like, I think I know what that means. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning, we're looking at the birth of Jesus, and we're saying it's covered with miracles all the way through and through. It reminds us of Adam, the first Adam. Did he have a mother? No. He had no mother. But God breathed in his nostrils, pneuma, the, the spirit, and brought Adam and Eve to life. And that is the way Jesus was created. We're going to go so much more into this Holy Spirit. I won't unpack it all now, but I do want to point out a few things from this verse. Uh, when Mary, his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, and this time, um, in our culture, engagement and marriage uh, doesn't carry the same weight or value. Is that safe for me to say as maybe it once did in the good old days? Um, when me and Christina were dating, uh, I didn't date anybody before I dated Christina. Um, many reasons why. Uh, it might have been my plumpness. It might have been, uh, I don't know. Uh, but Christina could see past all that, and she married me. Uh, she says it's for my sense of humor, uh, which I don't know what that all means. But um, no, but she, when we were dating, I told her while we were dating, I was like, if we... I, I, I haven't dated anyone, and the reason I haven't dated anyone is I don't see a point in dating until I see an point uh, that I'm ready to marry. And like that step of marriage, when we got engaged, I was like, well, if we don't get married, like I'm never getting married. I've messed something up. Like that, that this idea of being engaged carries weight. Back then, all the more. Betrothed might have meant for them, we don't know everything, it's not unpacked. Was it Mary's parents and Joseph's parents uh, that they'd gotten together? We don't know how they met or where everything came to peace. Uh, we don't have all those details, but we do know this. There was a legal contract and they were as good as married. And there was a time that is passing for which uh, they are going through a legal process by which one day they will be united and it will be consummated and they will be fully married. But they are promised to each other fully. She belongs to him. He belongs to her. They are united. And if you see this in the text, it says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They were in this engagement period, this promised period, before they came together, before they had uh, consummated their marriage uh, with sexual acts. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we don't also know this piece, but how did Joseph find Mary pregnant? Did Mary come home from her stay and say, by the way, I want to fill you in on some things that happened while we were away. Did she come home with a bump? 
We don't know. I can't figure out in all these weeks I've been studying this text what my favorable way would have been if I was Joseph. I think either of them, let's go back. If you were reading this for the first time, how would you respond? Now put yourself in Joseph's position. We're going to learn that Joseph was a just and upright man. The word of God is going to call him that. And that Mary, Mary the one the Lord had sent an angel to and had blessed. Now we're not going to put her on the same level that the Catholics do. But we are confidently going to say that Mary was rightly chosen to give birth to our Savior. Imagine the love that Joseph had for Mary. This wonderful woman who the Lord has chosen in time to give birth to the Savior. Think of all of the love that Joseph had for Mary purity, her innocence, and then to find her with child. Sit on that for a minute. There is something within men that we are prone to jealousy. We are prone in our sinful nature to respond hastily. We are prone not to think before we act. I had to say before we act as if sometimes we do think. <laughs> the women were like, we are prone not to think. And they're like, amen, they don't think. Um, How would you have responded? Who is he? What has happened? We know that he's thinking these things and considering these things because we're going to go further into this text and we are going to see that there is a struggle that goes within, that he is contemplating and thinking and going through his mind as a, as a righteous man how he should respond. He's not passively taking this. He knows that this discovery requires action. And he's not being passive about it. Let's continue. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm going to start with the word divorce. The fact that resolve to divorce means that, again, it talks about the importance of betrothal. It actually was a legal process in this betrothal to actually not be betrothed and get married anymore. It meant that he was going to have to go through some things to, to not be married to her anymore. And that was the process of divorce. Deuteronomy says, and Judah actually did call the harlot out to be burnt. 
Deuteronomy says that she is to be, to be stoned. But apparently Joseph, being a man who is just, is a man who's unwilling to put her to open shame. And so he thinks, how can I do this quietly? Think about discipline. Think about reproach. Often it's done publicly. Why? Not just for the person that is being disciplined, but also for those who witness it. Put to open shame. Have you heard that? Do we use that language anymore? But that we talk about it openly. Why? So that the person who sinned can learn about it, but also the persons that are around can learn about the heartache of sin. And here we see in verse 19 that her husband, being a just man, was unwilling to do this but, and to put her to open shame, but resolved to divorce her quietly. He's a just man. Just is an adjective. What does just mean? Full of justice, doing what is right. He's considering and he's pondering what would be right and just. And that he's resolved. When someone is resolved, that's not a small word. I like the fact that uh, in English they've translated here resolved. Uh, it's concrete, it's decided. He was firm in his decision. It wasn't something like, but you could sway me a different way. He'd become resolute, resolved, and settled after pondering and making decision of what he should do that he would put her away quietly, that he would take her, get two signed articles, most likely, and divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but he considers these things. As he's considering these things, apparently he falls asleep. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Have you ever thought so long and prayed so long that you fall asleep? Like that you come to the end of yourself? Um... I remember several times, um, think of times that you've come to the end of yourself. Uh, I can think of several for me. Uh, I can think of one time uh, where I had prayed um, during an hour and a half long commute, and I could not pray anymore. I did not have words to say, and a song came on the radio where the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart. I pulled over because my eyes could not see clearly because I was crying so much. And I just sat there and said, Lord, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit prays for me because I don't have words. What is the most whooped that you've ever been in difficulty and coming to the end of yourself? I believe that this is where Joseph is. At the end of himself. And let me encourage you, just like he did with Joseph, just like he's done with me several times in my life. It is good for me to get to the end of myself. It is so good for me to figure out that I don't control all things. It is good for me to find out that I can't fix this. It is good for me 
to not trust my own way or trust in my capabilities. It is good to be humbled. For when we are humbled, what does God do? Raises us up with Christ. (laughs) And that's what he does for Joseph. He raises him up with Christ. It's a wonderful, beautiful text. Let's continue to go. As he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. An angel of the Lord. This is the way the prophets of old. This is the way that the Lord came and spoke and dwelt. uh, um, Some in maybe the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the form of of a human body coming and and dwelling and and talking and congregating with man. Sometimes it might be Gabriel that came and met with Mary, but every time it is God giving revelation through these angels. And the angel of the Lord comes to appear to Joseph and reveal God's decrees and his ordinances. And it's great. He reminds him first by saying, Joseph, son of David. He doesn't say Joseph, the carpenter. He reminds Joseph of his dignity and reminds him of the promises of God, even in what he calls him. In his humility, he could have been like, get up. I deserve to hear that sometimes. Why are you moping about this? We've already discussed it, Jared. But he reminds not David of his identity, but he reminds David not of his lineage, not David, Joseph, not of his lineage. He reminds Joseph of his promise to this lineage. Think of what this means. Somebody's going to sit on the seat of David. Who's it promised to be? The covenant is with David that what? There will be a son of David that comes. It'll be Christ the Lord. So Joseph, son of David, David ears perk up, I imagine. Do not fear. I would be fearful. The Lord speaking to me through an angel in a dream like, Again, the multitudes, the magnitudes, often you see the angels and the response is fear. It's the angels who will come in strength and power and might as a holy war in Revelation to bring an end to sin. But this one is coming to bring a wonderful announcement. And he says, do not fear. And then he goes through commandments. I thank the Lord for Matthew. Matthew is often, uh, when he prays, he doesn't, He calls it out and he says, these are commandments. These are not optional. I don't know how many times you've said that, Matthew. I think the angel is doing it here too. He's saying, do not fear. And then he starts giving out commandments. He's prescriptive. Take Mary as your wife. And then he calms him down for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of the virgin birth and of salvation 
and why this is important. There's so many people that have tried to take the virgin birth away and say that it could not be, it's too miraculous, and it's not necessary. It's one of those parts of the scripture that we can just look past and say, it's a, it's a nice little antidote, or it's a passe event in here, and we can just look past it. I would like to consider a few things. I have three principles, I believe, that will make it so concrete that to deny the virgin birth unravels salvation altogether. Despite the long-held belief that we read in the Nicene Creed, thank you very much, uh, Brian, for where are you at, brother? Thank you very much for the Nicene Creed this morning. Despite the long-held belief in the virgin birth and its biblical basis, it's often been targeted as kind of a secondary, tertiary, or even non-relevant part of Scripture that can be omitted because it doesn't hold up to modern scientific scrutiny. The virgin birth was one of the flashpoints of fundamentalism or modernist controversies of the earliest 20th century. And more recently, it's been argued that holding to the virgin birth actually downplays the connectivity between Jesus and humanity. as if they're trying to hold up Jesus and his humanity by taking away one of these central doctrines. I believe, though, that in the virgin birth, we as a church believe in, in the virgin birth. We pray that you believe in the virgin birth, that it's not a take-it-or-leave-it matter. The issue touches whether we believe in God's supernatural intervention in this world. The biblical teaching on sin, the unique parallel between first Adam and second Adam, Adam and Christ, and the plain meaning of Scripture, the historic unifying creeds of Christianity. I'm going to mention three things that we cannot remove. First, the virgin birth shows us that our Redeemer is fully and truly a man, yet without sin. He is fully, truly a man, yet without sin. He is unique man, without sin. Jesus was born supernaturally, but not in the way that makes his humanity different from ours. Hebrews 2 affirms that in verse 10 and 11. As one who was conceived uniquely by a woman, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is guarded from original sin. He did not inherit Adam's sin and condemnation, but is without the condemnation of Adam as without sin. You and I, we inherit our sinful nature, the condemnation of Adam's sin, and we aggravate sin all the more in our own. We are born lacking innocence. But Jesus is guarded from original sin and its doctrine and stands uniquely parallel to Adam. Where Jesus, to have been born with a sinful nature, he would not be a sinless savior. He would not be able to be a spotless lamb and he would not be able to save a people for their sins. If he was sinless in his own action, he would not be able to save all of the sins of the world if he was not a sinless savior, truly man. The virgin birth is the means by which the Holy Son of God was incarnate. He was born without sin. God with us, born without sin. Second, the virgin birth also 
assumes his pre-existence. This is Jesus of old. This is Jesus who was at the foundations with the Father. This is Jesus who was at creation. This is Jesus who was during the Old Testament. This is Jesus who was in his incarnation. This is Jesus who rose from... This is Jesus always and forever. Now, in this time, as man. But if he was born of Joseph, his pre-existence is put in question. The virgin birth is fitting for one who is already son of God before the incarnation. Our Savior is not only a man, he is not only truly, fully man, but he is the divine son of God. He is uniquely the God-man, the one who can accomplish salvation. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, as Matthew 1.23 will say. This is covenantal language. This is promise language. It's reflecting on the high covenant promise of God walking among us as he did in the garden as our God, Leviticus 26.12. This is high promise, high covenantal language. He is Emmanuel, God now with us. Not God presently created, but God who's always been with us in person. Third, the virgin birth shows us God's initiative in salvation. Salvation is a gift. Before the incarnation of the Son of God, many had tried to bring lasting salvation. Half of your Bible is about many people trying very hard to bring about lasting salvation. We've been studying in Hebrews. How long did it last? And then guilty again. But God's plan is worked out in his timing and in his way. The power of God is contrasted with the weakness and powerlessness of human beings to accomplish lasting salvation. All of these things are because of the virgin birth. Is the virgin birth necessary? Amen. My conclusion to this would be summed up this way. The virgin birth is not an isolate, isolated doctrine. It's a very connected doctrine. It's tied closely to the person and work of Christ. For as by sinful man comes death, by a sinless man comes the resurrection from the dead. The church father, Arrhenius, captured it memorably as I read it this week. He said this, if one does not accept the son of God's birth from a virgin, how can he accept the resurrection from the dead? If you cannot accept the miracle of the virgin birth, you cannot believe in a resurrection from the dead. Let's keep on going, Matthew 121, and read about the ordinances of God, the decrees of God. I love it. I love the way the angel spoke so surely. Um, without any waffling, it says that he, Joseph was resolved, uh, but then he, as he considered, the resoluteness, the resolve is in the angel's tone. Listen to what the angel says. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Did the angel have any doubt 
in his grammar. Hey, if all things work out here, we could have a really good thing going, Joseph. If, if you're willing to participate, if Mary's willing to participate, if we can make a reservation for an inn in Bethlehem, like if we could do all of these things, if the devil doesn't have his way, the angel knows God the Father has seen his decrees, has seen creation, let there be light, and there was light. God said it, so I trust it. So he comes with a message, and the message is very clear. Not a lot of explanation behind it. He just states it plainly. And he says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He's not like, oh, by the way, like don't divorce her. He's like, no, 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 y'all are married. Y'all are getting married. You're gonna actually, she's gonna give birth. You're not gonna put her away. You're not gonna put her to open shame. She's not gonna be stoned. She will bear this son. You are going to give the name because you're gonna be married. You will call his name Jesus. And what he's going to do, his purpose, he's going to save a people for his sins. We could go into limited atonement here. We could go into so many truths. But right here, I want to go to the strengths of the ordinances of God. If God speaks it, it is so. Do you believe it? She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Do you believe that all those things have come true? Replete, fully. The angel was right. And then Matthew 21, 22 through 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, past tense, already spoken by the prophet. This isn't the first time you've heard this, son of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This wasn't the first time that God had promised, but here he reminds us of the promise. He reminds Joseph of God's promises. The incarnation, another beautiful doctrine. To call the incarnation relevant also almost sounds patronizing. It's more than relevant. Timely. It's not a strong enough word. I could not come up with a strong enough word to talk about how much we need to study the incarnation. So whatever the highest word you have for it, the doctrine of the incarnation is so important to us. We need to recognize the intimate connection between this important doctrine and our personal piety and sanctification. Until we grasp that Christ is God in the flesh, the Old Testament will remain just a collection of stories about how men and women struggled with the call to faith. The incarnation helps us to see that the Old Testament sets the stage for God to once again live with man as he lived in Eden. On every Old Testament page, God promises a human deliverer who is also stronger than Satan. Genesis 3.15, he will crush his head. Both a suffering servant and an anointed king. 
The reality of God with us is explained and applied throughout the rest of Scripture, starting with Matthew. The New Testament is not simply a collection of ethical teachings or ethical instructions or moralistic do's and don'ts, or even a commentary on life or a good life or on the life or good life of a certain Nazarene. It is a real-life story of what happened when God came to man that he might, that we might, that you might belong to him. The New Testament is the answer to the Old Testament's anticipation of a Redeemer and a Messiah. Only in the incarnation of Christ are all the promises answered finally and forever and receive their yes, 2 Corinthians 1. Near the story's last chapter, Revelation, John heard these words from heaven. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Revelation 21.3. Revelation doesn't happen without the incarnation in Matthew. There's no means by which revelations can come true without God dwelling Emmanuel with us. So connected. It makes God accessible. Think of this. In the Old Testament, God was accessible only through the mediation of prophets, of priests, of kings. We've been studying it in Hebrews. How timely for us that we don't have to go to a tabernacle or a temple. No, Israelite could properly see God, John 1.18. John Calvin said the revelation of God prior to Christ was like a pencil sketch. It's rough. We went to Disneyland and we went to a... Um, a store where the sketch artist was like drawing out and you got to look over and it was becoming more precise and more as he was coloring it in. And, and I didn't have time to sit there and watch it unfold, but you could look right next to him to finished products. And you're like, that guy is going to turn that into that? The Old Testament, you stare at it and you're like, how is this going to become revelation? The author's going to put pen and paper to it and, and give us Jesus. Going to look at his son and say, now's the time, go and redeem a people. In Christ, God became accessible to us in the most familiar form. Six times in the opening of this first letter, John says, we saw him. What? We saw him. We beheld. We're putting our eyes on Jesus. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the majestic God of heaven and earth cried out to the crowds, come to me. What? Jesus, God, is saying physically, come to me. And in his earthly ministry, God with us, he's calling people who see him with their eyes. And he, he's calling people that are here, hearing his voice. And he says, come to me. If you want to know what God is like, study Christ. Jesus' earthly posture, his tone of voice, his attitude and reactions to the events were those of God. God is Christ-like. It also reveals, and I'm glad we've been in Hebrews, um, can't help but preach Hebrew again by pointing out its connectivity here. It reveals that our only mediator is Jesus Christ. At Mount Sinai, Israel needed mediation. 
needed somebody to stand in the gap between. They were justly terrified by God's thunderings, as you and I would as well. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die, Deuteronomy 5 said. God gave Moses a temporary mediatorship in Deuteronomy 5.27, who admonished the people to look for a better one. In Deuteronomy 18.15, of the man Jesus Paul later wrote, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2.5, in his humanity Christ suffered for our judgment for sin. In his divinity he endured that judgment to the very end. It also reveals God's humility and his glory. Christ humbled himself in the lowest form to the earth because we needed rescue that's humbling. God lowered himself to gather to himself his rebellious children. Even the earthly body of Christ was lowly. It was accrued as a tabernacle in the desert compared with the pyramids of Egypt or the ziggurats of Babylon. Christ was willingly compromised He willingly compromised his reputation by becoming a man. In paradoxical form, in Christ's humility, God also reveals his otherworldly glory. Jesus saw the events of his greatest earthly humiliation as the apex of his servant obedience, as his true glorification on earth. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In his humble estate. Calvin again, thank the Lord for Calvin. He boldly states that the richness of God's glory is invisible until it shines forth in Christ. The majesty of the Father is hidden unto it shows himself, and we are impressed. Impressed on Christ's image as revealed in God's word. And then, as I said, it encourages our piety. The incarnation encourages our godly living. It compels us. It calls us. It's not a matter of should we. We shall be holy as he is holy. For the love of Christ compels us. Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. True godliness is lived out in mutually loving experience with God. With biblical warrant, we usually think of the cross as the greatest manifestation of God's love. But if on the cross, Christ's descent reached the pit of hell, the incarnation was his first step in the agonizing descent. We need to know Christ as he truly is, God and man in one beautiful, glorious person. Knowing Christ ensures being changed fully by him. Knowing Christ is what changes a man. I would like to end with a song that um, Keith Getty wrote, and it's written in an old hymn style. But I want to thank the Lord for one ultimate truth here. The reason all of this happened was because God decreed it. Humanity didn't bring this to bear. A woman didn't create this Jesus. 
a husband and wife didn't raise their son to perfect obedience and a sinless self. They didn't raise the most sacrificial man to ever live. It was because God decreed it. This modern hymn written by Mr. Getty is called Whate'er My God Ordains is Right. It's a poem. I'd like to read it, and we will end this way. Whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. And so to him, I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the, poor, the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent his hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may better seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. For my God is true each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. And pain and sorrow shall depart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, he holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. And so to Him, I leave it all. I believe that Joseph sang a song much like this. So he marries Mary. She gives birth to a son. And he calls his name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. May we have obedience heart and hear the word of the Lord like Joseph did and respond with, my father's care around me there, he holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that uh, we can come to you and study the deep truths of Scripture. And Lord, as we contemplate and think and dwell on your truths, your spirit uh, does minister to us grace and mercy that we would understand, perceive more of you, and our faith and affections would rise. Lord, as we uh, leave this time, I pray that it would be to your glory, to your honor alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.